People have been uh, giving fashion advice for a long time. Uh, this week I read some advice given in the 1800s uh, to men concerning their dress. Here's, here's what the advice was. Don't dress like a dude or a swell, nor carry a little poodle dog. A man's glory is a strength and manliness, not in aping silly girls. Nor cock your hat on one side, nor tip it back on your head. Let it sit straight and square. Nor wear anything conspicuous or that will make you offensive to others. So that was from Modern Manners and Social Forms, written in 1889. Uh, well, times change, of course. Fashion advice changes. Uh, it can be, uh, well, some people like that. Some people don't, right? They always want to stay ahead of the times and looking for more fashion advice. Others don't care. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, the, 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 the advice that Peter gives in this text concerning fashion and how we should uh, dress, fortunately, his advice doesn't change. Did you notice that he gives fashion advice in this text? Yeah, verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So all of you, verse 5, Peter speaks uh, first to two different groups of people in, in verses 1 to 5. The first group were, were the, was that of the shepherds, the elders, overseers. Uh, talks to them in verses 1 to 4. And then verse 5, he says, you younger men. That's the second group. Uh, when he says likewise, right, you younger men likewise, he's showing all right, uh, I'm looking at two different sides of this relationship. Uh, the elders are to, there's instructions for the elders, but likewise, the other category, uh, you're to uh, function this way. And then all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Uh, clothe yourselves, this word means to tie on, you know, most literally, to tie on. It was used to speak of tying on the apron of a slave or to put on the overalls of a slave. Uh, it can refer to other things that you're tying on. You're putting on a different kind of an apron. But here, Paul, uh, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Tie on this apron of humility. Uh, well, the aprons, uh, the slave's apron is humility. We might call it humble service. It's kind of what he's saying to do, right? All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Be humble. Uh, we don't really wonder why Peter uses this kind of terminology. He could have just said, be humble. Be humble towards one another. But he almost paints a picture when he talks about humility. Why is he painting that picture? And what did he have in mind? I don't think there was any doubt what Peter had in mind. And no doubt why he worded it this way. To clothe yourselves, to put on the, the slave's apron of humility. Uh, I think he had, he had uh, learned an unforgettable lesson from the chief shepherd. He just spoke of the chief shepherd, and he was with Jesus, and he saw his Lord put on the slave's apron, right? In John 13, uh, you know that text perhaps, John 13, verse 30 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and then he had come forth from God and was going back to God. 
got up from supper and laid aside his garments and, and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. There's that same word that's used for tying it on. He put on a towel. He was the apron slave. He tied it around himself. So Peter remembers Jesus doing this for him. Then he poured water into the wash basin and began to, to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Peter, to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Right? And there's the emphasis is on the, on the you and the my. You? Are you going to wash my feet? In verse 12 in that same text, John 13 says, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, so also, ought, uh, so also ought to wash one another's feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So you call me teacher and Lord. So he's highlighting the fact that he is in a position of authority. Isn't that interesting how the Lord is coordinating our text last week with with this week, last week, uh, fits so nicely with um, Pastor Ron and what he was teaching in John 10. And now this week um, fits so well. So Jesus is referencing his authority and saying, I know, I know why, Peter, you're, you're asking me that question. You? You're going to wash my feet? Yeah, because there's a big difference here. Uh, but I've, I've, I'm leaving you an example. Uh, this is how you ought to function. And it's how you are to teach and disciple everyone else to function. Uh, this is what it means for an authority even. Uh, everyone clothes, must clothe themselves in humility, not just the ones that we would think of as inferior, but everyone needs to clothe themselves with humility. Uh, that word humility that the Apostle Peter uses in our text uh, means uh, lowliness of mind. It's an attitude which recognizes one's own unworthiness before God and which recognizes God's supreme worth and glory. Uh, when Peter uses the term, I mean, you know, secular people might use that same word. And uh, who really knows how they define it? Uh, there, there's a reference, there's a scale, right? We're, we're, there's a lowliness of mind. We're, we're lower than others, right? But when Christians use it, we know we have a scale upon which to discern what is, who is highest and who is lowest and what that means. Uh, and so it's always in relationship to God uh, where we reference God and His greatness and recognize where He wants us to be, what He's made us to be. And of course, we also recognize our own sinfulness and weakness. That's all revealed to us by His truth. We are unworthy before God and He has supreme worth. He's our creator. We're the created. Uh, we owe everything to Him. He owes nothing to us. Everything He gives to us is completely undeserved favor. Every perfect gift that comes down from above shows His glory. Every gift to us is a gift of undeserved favor that we aren't worthy of. He's the sustainer. We depend on Him for everything. This is humility. This is what humility recognizes. Um, we depend on Him for everything. He's, he's absolutely trustworthy. Uh, that is, that He's, he's worthy of our trust. Uh, he's worthy of minute-by-minute minute trust. 
because he sustains us minute by minute. Uh, in a sense, we can be trustworthy, but that's only by his undeserved favor, which works in us, enabling us to be that. Without him, we're completely untrustworthy. So he creates and sustains all things to put his worth and glory on display. And we should all fall in line with this. But when our pride grips our hearts, we try to show off our glory. We try to feel glorious. Um, so this is really what Paul's talking about, Romans eleven thirty six. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So holiness, I mean, I'm sorry, for humility then is lowliness of mind. It's an attitude that recognizes one's own unworthiness before God and which recognizes God's supreme worth and glory. And so we're to take that humility and clothe ourselves with it. There's a practicality to it. Uh, when we recognize who we are before God uh, and clothe ourselves in that, then we're ready to serve others. Jesus Christ had this attitude, this lowliness of mind, and we see it in his humility as he lived it out. And so Peter exhorts us to have the same attitude um, to serve others. So we must dress ourselves in the apron of a servant, serving men and obeying God. All of us must. This is the humble clothing of sheep. Uh, this is not just uh, uh, something we do from time to time. This is how we are to dress every day, always dressed in this humility. Um, I was thinking it'd be good if, uh, if our kids wore aprons and we just wrote uh, Christ's apron or Jesus' apron and they would then be reminded every time they do their chores that Jesus, the great one, God in the flesh, he serves us. And that's amazing. He still serves us today, right? Intercedes in our behalf. And he took up, he put on that, that very simple, ragged, I suppose, we don't really know what it looked like, but apron slave and put it on to serve men. So it's not too big of a thing for parents to say to their children, we have a bunch of chores for, for you to do, a whole bunch of them. But how helpful it would be if we reminded them of how Christ serves them and how he embraced humility. And so it's an honorable thing. To, to serve others in very practical, simple ways. Um, so this is, this is the heavenly and the ageless, ageless fashion advice from God to his sheep. Um, so yeah, a lot of people don't like, they have no interest in, in, in taking fashion advice from anybody when it comes to their physical clothing. But this is the one thing that we ought to be mindful of when it comes to how we portray ourselves in this world and in relationship to others. So Peter answers two questions about the humble clothing of sheep in this text. Uh, how do? Because I think uh, that command to clothe yourselves in humility is central to verses 1 to 5. And so he's really expounding on that in, this, in these five verses. And so he's, he's filling out that idea. So he answers two questions. First, how do sheep dress themselves in humility toward one another? That's the first question that Peter intends to answer in this text. And the first one he gives on the front end of that command, uh, and that's when he speaks to shepherds. So how do sheep dress themselves in humility toward one another? First, 
Shepherds must lead in a way that pleases the chief shepherd. So shepherds, elders, overseers, they need to put on the aprons, the slaves' uh, apron. They need to do this. Uh, And so what that means is that they must shepherd, uh, they must lead in a way that pleases the chief shepherd. And we went over this last week, so I have an opportunity to review what we did last time, right? So first, elders must accept that they've been called to suffer for Christ. That's the way in which they do it. So they have a certain mindset about shepherding. It's not a a high and mighty exalted position that puts them out of the reach of suffering. No. When you you say, "I, I will serve as a shepherd, that's what you're saying, I will serve as a shepherd. And I'm called to suffer just like my Savior, my chief shepherd was called to suffer. And so I'm going to walk in his footsteps. And so when someone is appointed to be an elder, we hand them Jesus' slave, slave's apron, and he puts it on. Uh, that's part of what happens when he, when he takes on that responsibility. So he becomes like, like Peter says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he refers to the sufferings and the glory also, so he's reminding that Jesus on his path to glory is a path of suffering. And that's what the elder does. That's what Peter does as an elder. He is pursuing glory, uh, but he does it just as Jesus did by embracing that suffering, that, that, uh, that path to glory by means of suffering. Second, uh, they must be glad to care for the flock, motivated by genuine love for the people. That's, that's the humility of a uh, servant, of a humble servant, being clothed in humility. They're, they're glad to care for the flock, not some proud, uh, frustrated, um, complaining, uh, responsible person. That's not who he is. He's glad to care for the flock because of, he's clothed with humility, motivated by genuine love for the people. Right. So he's overseeing, verse 2 says, not under compulsion but willingly according to God. And not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. So that's what it looks like for an elder to be clothed with humility. Third, they must shepherd with a humble gentleness and by a good example. In verse 3, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. Right? There's a way that they could exercise authority and give direction uh, in a way that is not gentle, and so it's not humble, they lord it over others. They're intimidating. Um, they, they like their, the, that sense of authority that they have, and it feeds them, and they, they derive pleasure from that, uh, and that's pride. Uh, they, should lord it, they should not lord it over those allotted to their flock, but uh, instead they should have the humble gentleness and lead by a good example. Um, an example just like Christ was, and I think probably when he is about ready to say, right, in the next verse 5, clothe yourselves in humility. How did Jesus lead? Well, he, is, he left the glories of heaven, and he still had command of all creation, and yet he, he serves by example. He gives instruction, here's what I want you to do. This is how I want you to train others and disciple others. This is how the church is going to be created. You guys are going to do it. Uh, this towel here, 
There's, there's other towels. Everyone pick up a towel on your way out and just keep these on and take more and pass them out. Uh, this is how the church is built, through humble servants. So you must shepherd with a humble gentleness by a good example. Fourth, uh, they must love and cherish imperishable rewards rather than temporal things. And then fifth, kind of combined with that, they must keep their eyes on their chief shepherd. So that's how they clothe themselves with humility. They're thinking about imperishable rewards rather than temporal things. And they're keeping their eyes on the chief shepherd. Verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay, so that's what it means as far as shepherds go. How do sheep dress themselves in humility toward one another? First, shepherds must lead in a way that pleases the chief shepherd, right? That's humble. So uh, a proud leader leads, he, he decides what he wants the church to look like, where he wants people to go, but he doesn't consider the will of the chief shepherd. He doesn't consider how he'll give an account to the chief shepherd one day. It's just him leading, and that's pride. Even if he comes up with good things to say and good organization, has good skills, and can teach in a way that people find attractive, he has to love the chief shepherd and fear the chief shepherd and live for seeing the chief shepherd, and that's indispensable. And it's scary to have a leader who does not do that. Um, all right, second, he talks to the sheep. Sheep must place themselves under their elders. Sheep must place themselves under their elders. So verse 5 says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Uh, be subject to... Uh, the verb was used back in chapters 2 and 3 where Paul spoke of submission in various relationships, submission to government, uh, the servants or the slaves' submission to his master, and the wife's submission to her husband. Same word that's being used there. The word means to rank oneself under or to place oneself under. And he's calling for uh, voluntary submission an attitude even of voluntary submission. Uh, so he's uh, mindful of the fact that God has ordained that there be a hierarchy of authority, a ranking that happens. Um, not of inferiority or superiority, as we've talked about uh, last hour, uh, but a ranking of delegated authority, delegated from the chief shepherd. He has an order for things. And so uh, they are to recognize that. Younger men, uh, he's speaking to, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Rank yourself under, place yourself under voluntarily. Uh, and this uh, reference to younger men has led to a whole lot of discussion. If you go to the commentaries, <laughs> there's uh, many, many pages uh, in each devoted to this. Why is Peter talking to the younger men? Who are they? How are we supposed to take this? Um, so who are these younger men? Or literally, younger. It doesn't actually have the word men in the Greek text. It's you, younger, likewise, be subject to your elders. So three main, uh, no, four, five main views. <laughs> First, some say Peter is telling the young men of the church to submit to the older men 
of the church. And he's basically telling the young people to respect the age, the, old, the elderly in the church. Uh, the problem with that is, in my mind, is Peter is clearly referring not to older men in verses 1 to 4, even though he's talking to, and he uses that word, elders, which can mean, just can refer to older people. But he's certainly referring to church leaders. The elders are told to shepherd and to oversee. He uses those two other terms that are used to speak of church leaders. Uh, he's talking to elders, uh, telling them to shepherd and oversee those allotted to their charge. Even that language is a language of authority. They're allotted to your charge. Uh, those are the responsibilities of church elders. So I don't think you can say... Uh, I think you can take that view. A second view, some say Peter is speaking to a recognized group of young leaders in the church or churches and telling them to submit to the pastors of their church. So you younger, right? And so the view says, if you take it this way, and all those churches, they had this, they knew what he was talking about. Oh, it's that group of young leaders. <laughs> but... Uh, the problem with that is that uh, we don't know of any younger uh, who constitute a class of church officials. Uh, there's no evidence of this. It's just uh, really kind of a strange thing to come up with. <laughs> um, a third view, some say Peter's referring to everyone who is not an elder. So he talks to the elders of the church, he wants you guys to lead this way in a way that pleases Christ. Now you younger ones, that is all the rest of the people in the church, um, and that's a little problematic, it seems to me. Uh, typically, elders were chosen from the more mature members of churches. That's true. Even that's only typically. We don't really know all the ages of people who were appointed as elders. Uh, the word elder, when it's used, I don't think is a reference even primarily to spiritual maturity, uh, certainly not physical maturity. Uh, the primary reference is this is to use the term of authority that was common for the Jewish people. I mentioned last time when Paul and Peter and the others set up churches, they typically referred to the church leaders as elders when the congregation was primarily Jewish. That was their point of reference for the one in charge or the people in charge. And when they spoke to Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, they didn't use the word elder. Typically, they used the word uh, episkopos. They used overseer, which was like boss. So it would make sense. So they would just use the word that everyone else would understand for the word for the guy in charge or the guys in charge. So, uh, so there were no doubt members who were as old or older than the pastors of the congregations to whom he's writing. And so it would be very strange... If, if, he, if he referred to the whole church as younger than the elders, especially if they had some elders who were 30 and they had a whole bunch of them that were 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, right? Or older. So I don't think that makes much sense. Fourth view, some say Peter's referring to those who were younger in the faith, less spiritually mature. So it gives instructions to the elders, the leaders of the church, and then speaks to those who are spiritually younger. And that just seems odd to me. Uh, it seems strange that the people would, 
would think of the rest of the congregation, because that's usually how they take it. The, 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 the elders are the spiritually mature ones, and so now he's talking to the less spiritually mature as a reference to the whole congregation. That's really how they, that's really that view that I'm describing here. Um, so it seems strange that the people would, would think of themselves or that even Peter would think of the congregation as less spiritually mature than the pastors. Now, I think we would generally say, you know, we look at the elders of grace, are they more mature than the rest of the church? Well, maybe generally we might say that, but there's still so many in the congregation that are probably just as spiritually mature as the elders, but they're not gifted to shepherd, not gifted to teach, perhaps, right? So it doesn't just have to do with, you know, it's not like the elders are are comprised of the most spiritually mature believers. It's not the way it works. There's more to it than that. They have to be able to defend the teachings of Scripture and refute those that contradict, right? Paul says to Titus, Titus chapter 1. So, uh, I don't think that holds. So, fifth view, and you can tell this is the one I hold, and it is the correct view. I think, and, and actually, I think it with, with most, with the vast majority of Bible teachers. So it's not, it's not the uncommon view. And uh, there's, there are some that hold, I think probably the, I don't know what would be the next most common view, but it's way down the list. Almost everyone really holds this last view. Uh, but yet once in a while, and I was faced with this as I've pastored in the last 20 years, people that would challenge this, and they were trying to do away with authority in the church. Chris mentioned um, house churches. Uh, and there's a lot of house churches out there, a big house church movement that ebbs and flows. Uh, there was a period, maybe 80s, when house churches were, were gaining popularity. People wanted to meet in homes, kind of do away with authority. Yet, as Chris mentioned, there were still people in authority, the ones that were hosting these things. They were usually driving it. Oh, that became a little less popular, but then... It rises in popularity for a while, and a few more books are published, kind of a different circle of people, and, but it always goes back to the same thing. And, and, uh, and so I've had discussion about this text where I didn't hold this view, so, but I think this is the correct view, that Peter's referring to young people, young people in the church. So he's telling the young people in the church to submit to their pastors. Uh, the idea is that everyone must submit, but that the young people especially must heed this exhortation and fall in line. So the idea is everyone must submit, even the young people who might be inclined to be impulsive, aggressive, and independent uh, in spirit. Um, why do so many conclude that Peter is actually, in a sense, saying everyone must submit, but especially you younger need to? Why does everyone walk away? Why do most people walk away with that view? Here are some reasons. First, it was common knowledge that church members needed to submit to their leaders. It almost didn't need to even be said. Um, if, he's, if he writes the first four verses and he's telling the leaders to lead, what does it mean for the rest of the church? But then they need to hear those instructions and realize that God is telling that person to lead me, right? So if I'm going to be humble, I'm going to accept the fact that he's supposed to lead me. Right? So I don't need to be told to put myself under. I, shouldn't, I, just, I should know that. Um, does that make sense? So 
Uh, it was common knowledge that church members needed to submit to their leaders. Uh, people would, would think it without him having to say it explicitly. Second, it's implied already in this passage that everyone must submit to their pastors. How is it implied? First, the metaphor that's used, and second, the instructions that are given. The metaphor is that of shepherds and sheep. Pastors are shepherds of sheep. The metaphor communicates that certain ones are over others. The instruction speaks of how elders are to use their authority. Uh, so, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. So he's saying, don't abuse your God-given authority. Right? So it, it implies those things already. Um, you know, if they embrace this terminology of shepherds and sheep, and they said, well, I don't think I need to follow the authority, then they're saying, yeah, I may be a sheep, but in this case, I think I'm going to tell the shepherds what to do. That just doesn't make any sense. Third reason, the command has already been given in the letter. So I don't think Peter needs to say it explicitly. People would have known it already. The command for everyone to submit to the authority of the elders. Chapter 2, verse 13, Peter said, Be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution. And then he starts to spell out some of these relationships, whether to a king as the one in authority, and he goes on. Uh, now that was, I don't know how many months ago for us that we read that and we thought about that. Uh, but uh, if you're reading this letter, that was about three minutes ago. <laughs> and so they were, they were reminded that God is an order of authority. And we are, t- and it's responsible for us who are not given that role of authority to submit to the one that is given that role of authority. And so when, when Peter comes along and says the elders are to oversee, they all know, okay, if I fear God, then I'm going to fit in line with this order of authority. Uh, and then fourth, fourth reason people take it this way, when he says all of you, right after that, uh, he's really tying everything together. Um, so you younger who are more impulsive, let me just remind you of this. This is going to be hard for you uh, because you're coming in. We still see it. I still see it in the church. When younger guys, they, they can be saved, they can do just a little bit in the church, they, they want to teach, they want to do all these things, and, and uh, they start thinking they've got better ideas than the elders. And it's really amazing to me. Like, just spend another 10 years, then you realize you don't know that much. You've got a long ways to go, and then another 10 years, and then maybe you'll be ready, actually, to shepherd. Um, well, there's this little period of time early on where... They just can't understand why. So many things aren't different in the church. They really think they've got it figured out. So I, I can, as a pastor, I can totally understand why Peter would say that. You younger? Yeah, even you. You've got to fit in. You've got to humbly uh, rank yourself according to God's ranking and order of authority. So we should see Peter's exhortation as one to the whole flock, with a particular warning to the younger, which might have a stronger tendency to disregard their shepherds. So now the question is, what does it mean to place yourself under the pastors? What does it mean to place yourself under the pastors? And we'll come back to that in a little bit. So let's go to the second question, though. So Peter's got two questions about the humble clothing of sheep that he answers. How do sheep dress themselves in humility toward one another? So he talks to the shepherds and talks to the sheep. Uh, And then second, why do sheep need to dress themselves in humility? 
there was a study done at Ohio State University, uh, and I think this study is dated, but uh, it says if, if they found that if women, they concluded if women want the best possible service at a clothing store, they'd better be looking fashionable and well-groomed before they hit the mall. So you can tell it's dated, right? Because we don't even go to malls anymore, <laughs> right? But this is a big study that was done. Uh, the study found that well-dressed and groomed <laughs> women, that's kind of funny terminology now too, they received the friendliest and in some cases the fastest service from sales clerks. Uh, researchers secretly observed interactions between customers and the salespeople uh, at three large women's clothing stores, timing how long it took for the salespeople to greet the customers, and they also rated the salespeople's uh, friendliness toward the, you know, the shoppers. And uh, the customers whose clothes were rated as more fashionable and attractive and who showed better grooming you know, makeup and everything fixed up, they received better service than those whose appearance was not rated as highly. Uh, so only four items were related uh, to how properly, how promptly shoppers were greeted by, by the salespeople. Hair grooming, fabric quality, accessory quality, and purse quality. It definitely sounds dated, doesn't it? I were like hair grooming, like now, if you're really fixed up, you don't actually do anything. You roll out of bed and, wow, well, you look really nice. Actually, actually, the purse quality is not outdated because women, for whatever reason, they'll pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a purse and you can get another one that looks just like it. Yeah. But then the people who do that, they know what the more expensive one looks like. Yeah. I mean, they know even though they look exactly like the other one that's in They can discern the difference anyway. Oh, and then so these people who work in the stores, they, they know the women that are carrying those more expensive. They can tell which ones are the yeah. nice ones, and they're like, they're, that's where we want. Right. They want to direct them. <laughs> <laughs> well, these uh, subtle clues, uh, you know, such as the accessories, they affected how quickly the salespeople approached customers while the overall appearance affected the friendliness. The accessories mattered, mattered for one thing, they found. And the overall appearance just affected the friendliness. That's amazing. Uh, the point is, what is the point? Money. The way you dress, <laughs> money, yeah. The way you dress makes a difference. The way you dress makes a difference. Uh, dress in a, ni in a nice fabric. And you'll be treated well, uh, apparently, by uh, at least certain salespeople. Well, dress yourself in humility. And Peter's saying it will make a difference. If you don't dress yourself in humility, it will make a difference. So how it'll make a difference because if you're dressed in humility, you'll be treated well by God. That's what Peter says. So first, he says, God is opposed to the proud. This is why you should... Dress yourself in humility. Look at verse 5 again. All of you, right in the middle of the verse, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. Here is why. Here is the motivation. Here is the incentive. Here is why you should put on that apron of humility toward one another. Because God is opposed to the proud. 
when a Christian doesn't dress himself in humility, when he, when he forgets his unworthiness, when he forgets God's worthiness, God is opposed to him. Sure, the Christian is at that moment opposed to God, in a sense, right? If he's not humbled before God. But here, Peter's saying God is opposed to him. Um, isn't that interesting? So an elder, and there's plenty of elders out there that have ulterior motives for their shepherding. God is opposed to them. That's what Peter's saying. That's, that's horrible, isn't it? Can you imagine having elders and, you, and, and then you knew about those elders that God was opposed to them? It's frightening. But what, what does that mean? How can we talk about God being opposed to us? I mean, we're still talking about believers, right? How, how do you think, well, I mean, people, Peter's definitely talking to believers, right? He's talking to shepherds. He's talking to sheep. How could it be that God is opposed to us? I mean, isn't that contrary to the gospel? What say you? How would you explain that? Yeah, God's instructions, God's will. Yeah, so he's not facing us. So like, he just kind of, like, nope, like, nothing for you. <laughs> I don't know about that. So opposition, opposition is like when you're going at each other, but you are yeah. facing. Right. Facing, yeah, I think it's uh, in a military term. Yeah. He makes himself an enemy against you. He's ready to come after you. So how does that fit with the gospel? I mean, you're not ultimately like forever against you. He might discipline you, which is for you, but in that moment, in a sense, he's against you. So like he's saying, yeah. You are wise. She has the answer key. Yeah, yeah the answer key. <laughs> yes. Right, right. Yeah, so this is, yeah. This is also related to Scripture, so God cannot work at sin. Mm -hmm. So when we do sin, He's not happy with us. Right. Because I, I, I can't look at that sin, but then in the very next millisecond, He's like, but I see Jesus because you are mine. You can accept part of me mm -hmm. because God has called you. But yeah, so, and so when He sees our sin... Yeah, and it's, so it's similar to uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear <coughs> during the, your time of stay on earth. Uh, if you address as Father, the one who is the judge, right? So, uh, so yeah, he sees our sin. It's not like when we become Christians, he loses the ability to discern sin in our lives and also stops being holy in terms of being having a holy revulsion to our sin. No, he hates our sin in us. And then you said, what, a millisecond, right? And maybe that's even too long, right? <laughs> yeah, at the very same time, let's just remove all time. At the very same time, he sees us in Christ and loves us. But because he sees us 
in Christ and loves us and discerns our sin as a holy and just God, that's why he opposes us with the, with the spanker, with the happy stick. That's what we call it in our, on our house, the happy stick. And, uh, but so I would call it a for you opposition. I put my notes, even before my daughter said something similar. Yeah. He turned his face from him. We were all sitting there like, what? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, I've been a Christian for a long time, but you're reminded once again how that did happen. Right. But it was, it, it was quick, but it was, it was profound. That's what you're yeah. saying. Quick doesn't mean like, oh, I've already forgotten it today. Right. Yeah, so like Psalm 13, uh, don't, don't forsake me in your anger. Um, but he's, he's not saying it was the, he's not talking about a forsakenness that describes the relationship between God and an unbeliever. Not that kind of forsakenness. Uh, but it's the forsakenness of, and the, and the, the, the uh, Puritans used to refer to it as spiritual desertion, where God would withdraw the, the comforting the sense of his presence um, as discipline or as training. Uh, as, as retributive discipline that was loving or as training in order to train them um, that they might grope for him. Uh, and so, so it's a for you, it's a for you frown and a for you opposition. He's coming against you because he loves you. Right? This is what Jonah got, right? Spanking. Uh, the spanking wasn't uh, the great fish. That was the rescue, right? The spanking was three, was it three pagans on board? Threw them overboard. And then he sunk down into the sea, and he describes the seaweed as wrapping around his neck, about ready to snuff the life out of him. And it was with the seaweed wrapped around his neck that he expressed this prayer of repentance in Jonah 2. And then God sent a great fish to rescue him. And the time in the fish was, was sweet fellowship with the Lord and uh, wasn't comfortable in any other way, presumably, but comfortable because he was communing with his, with his Lord at that point. And then God, after the right time of, you know, giving him time to meditate and enjoy the Lord, fellowship with the Lord and gear up for round two of his evangelistic ministry, right? Then God had a, the, vom, the fish vomit him up on land. Um, <clears throat> so it was for you opposition. How wonderful to have that for you opposition. So that's what happens when you don't clothe yourselves in humility, when elders are not humble or when sheep are not humble with regard to their elders. There's this from God for you opposition. Um, and, it, and it is a, a military term. It's just, so Peter is saying uh, when, when, when pastors lead in a harsh and domineering way or a, or a Christian doesn't submit to the pastors over him, then it's like a, a trumpet is blown and an army is assembled and God leads this army. God is opposed to the proud. That, that proud Christian is the target. And so Peter is saying don't be God's enemy.
Um, and then second, he adds on to that other phrase, second, God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So there's negative and then positive, right? Dress yourself in humility, and you'll be treated well by God. God's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Uh, so God promises blessing to those who are humble. Uh, he promises unmerited, undeserved favor, right? Because so even if they're being obedient, the blessings that they get are still undeserved. Um, so I take it that when He gives grace to the humble, I mean, if you're proud, you're still getting, in some sense, you're still getting grace, right? That for you opposition. So he's using the word grace here to speak of those positive, those enjoyable blessings. And, and uh, I, I think it's used that way in Scripture at times. To, grace is used that way to speak of um, en- enjoying his favor, the enjoyment of his favor. So, and that, that's, that's awesome. That promise, that is awesome. It's awesome for shepherds that are that are humbly serving, what, what they have in store for them is, is the enjoyment of God's favor. If they don't lead in a way that pleases God, then God assembles an army and comes after them. But if they have that right motivation, if they are humble in the way that they lead, leading like Christ, thinking about the chief shepherd, then they have in that work, they have the enjoyment of God's favor. And those that are under the authority of shepherds, which is all sheep, which includes other pastors, right? So I, I will always serve on a team, uh, Lord willing, unless some weird circumstance, they both die. <laughs> they all die. I'm the only one left. But um, you're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> okay, forget that. Let's talk about normal circumstances, usual circumstances. Um, so I... You know, I'm going to be serving with Jim and Tyler, and I'm a sheep, and I need to be shepherded. And I need, I need Jim and Tyler to shepherd me. I know that I need that from what Scripture says. We're all sheep. That's why a plurality of elders is important. So I don't just make decisions independently. That would be proud. I need to recognize the authority that God has placed over me, even my brothers. And everyone else, to me, to Jim, to Tyler, and you all, to others at Grace, right? Sometimes that can be hard. Sometimes there are decisions that are made. You just, you just don't like it. This doesn't make sense to you or whatever. Or the way something's communicated. Or, and you're attempting ways to be proud about that. Um, sometimes people withdraw from the church a little bit in, in their pride. Well, if they're going to be that way and allow things to, be, to operate that way, I'm just not going to be involved in those ministries. They just pull back in their pride. They take off that apron, throw it down. I'm going to go to church, but I'm, just, I'm not going to... If they expect everyone to be involved, they just can't function like that. Right? So they, they just withdraw. And sometimes you'll see that in the church. People have been in the church. They were involved for 10 years. Then they kind of retreat. They're hurt by something. Something one elder did or a couple elders did or whatever. And what they forfeit, they forfeit an enjoyment of God's favor. God still loves them, and He's opposed to them, right? He's going to come after them. 
But those that, that, that make that decision to voluntarily place themselves under the authority, then what, what God has for them is awesome. He says, yeah, it's hard, it may be hard for you, but I will give to you the enjoyment of my favor. I'll give grace to the humble. You, you fall in line, you get in line with this, it won't go badly for you. I mean, don't get me wrong, the elders will still make mistakes, and they may even do more things that you don't like, and in that sense, it's painful. It's not a promise that everything's going to start going your way in terms of what you would like to see play out in life. But what you get is a greater enjoyment of God. <laughs> That's what you get. That's the promise. That's incredible. And I don't know about you, that makes me want to find out what, it makes me want to find out what Jim and Tyler want. I mean, they're not actually elders yet, but they're going to. But it really does, it makes me think that way. When I'm in an elders meeting, I think about this. They're like, I don't know about this. I'm not, I'm trying to be pushy with them. No, no. What, was, what are your concerns? What are you, how can we work together? That's, that's, the way I enjoy God's favor that way. He tells me it's, there's conditional blessings there, right? I'm not earning those things because if I respond that way, it's because His grace is enabling me to respond that way, and then He gives grace. So it gives grace upon grace, right? We've talked about that before. But, uh, okay, so then the question, what is God's will concerning the submission of sheep to their shepherds? Uh, and, I'm, and so... After looking at the motivation, why do sheep need to address themselves to humility? All right, we, and, you know, we answered that, Paul, uh, Peter did, with those two points. So we're kind of going back to question number one, how do sheep dress themselves humility toward one another, but focusing on, on how sheep respond to the shepherds, elders? Because what is the pathway to you enjoying, enjoying God's favor more? By, by intentionally humbling yourself before your shepherds. Well, I mentioned a few things. Um, seven, well, I think seven, I don't know, clarifications um, about, how, about how sheep need to submit to their pastors and what that looks like. Uh, first, you should not disobey God in order to submit to your pastors. That's not the kind of humility he's talking about. You shouldn't disobey God in order to submit to your pastors. Right, Acts 5.29 is that well-known passage. Peter says we're to obey God rather than man. Uh, but we saw it earlier uh, that where he said that uh, in the fear of God, you should, you should submit to the, the authority in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Peter. It's, it's in the fear of God. So that's why you're putting yourself under that authority because you're recognizing God's ultimate authority to delegate authority. Well, if, if an elder tells you to do something that's sinful, then you can't obey Him. That, that wouldn't be humility, because humility is recognizing God's greatness and your lowliness uh, in respect to Him. So you can't sin against God to obey an authority. And, and if elders forbid you from doing something that God requires of you, then again, that's another way in which you would not obey them. So you shouldn't disobey God in order to submit to your pastors. Two. Uh, you must know your leaders. And I'm just going to quote this passage. You can turn there if you want. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Uh, we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you 
and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So you've got to know your leaders. We ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you. He's talking about those leaders, those shepherds, those elders, those overseers. You have to know them. You have to um, know God's plan for authority and, and, and just not don't, don't live as though you didn't have elders in your life that God had placed over you. Seek out their counsel. Respect them. Um, know them. Uh, and know them personally as much as you're able. Uh, third, you must think highly of your leaders uh, because you love them and understand their work. Think highly of your leaders because you love them and understand their work. You're not treating them like celebrities, right? Uh, we ask of you, brothers, still the same passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. We ask that you uh, know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Isn't that, that's interesting. Regard them very highly. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Uh, regard them very highly in love, right? So there's a graciousness there, an affection there, and it's because of their work, uh, because you know God is what the work that God has called them to do, and so you appreciate them for that. And then fourth, you must pursue peace with your leaders, with your elders. Pursue peace. At the end of that same text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, regard them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Live in peace. So don't gossip about them. Don't try to get other people to question their motives or to cast doubt on what they're doing. Uh, don't be feisty with them. I mean, you're, you're seeking peace. Live in peace with them. Of course, there's a responsibility for elders also, right? I think that command goes for the sheep and for the shepherds. Live at peace with one another. Uh, don't listen to gossip. Live in peace means when you hear it, hear people talking down, talking bad about them, Hey, don't, don't do that. Take them. Hold on a second. First Thessalonians. And then go back to First Peter. Here's the reason why. Because God's opposed to the proud. That's what you're doing right now. You think you know better, and you're trying to get other people to side with you. Don't do that. I want you to enjoy God's grace. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Um, and, of course, if you think that the elders are sinning or disagree, you can go to them and talk, but talk in a humble way. Um, and uh, in a loving way and work it through that way. And Matthew 18 gives further details, right, if you think that elder is sinning. Um, and then fifth, uh, you should be persuadable. He referenced this morning, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, right? Remember he referenced that this morning? Obey your leaders. Obey is the word patho. It's usually translated in the New Testament as persuade. Here it is. It does mean obey, but it's a different kind of obedience. It's not a blind, ignorant obedience. Oh, the elders want us to do this. I don't know why, but we better just do it. No, that's not the patho obedience. Patho obedience is, um, well, yeah, I'm going to follow what the elders say, but I'd like to understand why. I want to really throw myself into this and, and embrace their reasoning is the idea. And then, of course, uh, you're to obey your leaders, and that's the word submit. That's used in Hebrews 13, 17. You yield to them or place yourself under them. So, uh, pursue those things, and that's a pathway to the enjoyment of God's favor. 
and also brings, also makes for a healthy church, and it makes for leaders that are encouraged, uh, which Hebrews 13, 17 also talks about. Um, do this so that they will have joy in their work. Um, all right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. You instruct us how to live with one another, and you have an order to things in the church, um, yeah, leaders being appointed. And so uh, I, I pray, that, Lord, that you would give us uh, humility, bless the elders of grace, uh, make them humble, help them to keep their eye on your son, the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, and do everything to please him. Help them to love the sheep and so be blessed and not have your opposition. Help the sheep. Help the sheep, your people, to be humble towards one another, towards their leaders. The trust in you and to follow that leadership and even to be thankful for the leadership that you've provided. And uh, it's the pathway to the enjoyment of your favor. Thank you for instructing us this, this way. You do this, you say these things for our good. And this is the outworking of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. And you have saved us from our sin and saved us from ignorance. We wouldn't know these things apart from your grace. You've saved us and you fill us with knowledge and instruction and commands. And all these commands and instruction, they, they lead us to a greater enjoyment of you, greater peace, joy, love, all these things that we want and need. Oh Lord, you, you tell us these things because you love us so much. Amazing that you have given us a book you revealed yourself and your will in it, and you give us these instructions because you've loved us from eternity, and you, you, you bless us with this truth in spite of our sinfulness. And so many times we've read your word and we have ignored it. We have not been obedient. We've taken it lightly, and yet your love persists. You love us. You continue to bless us. And so you brought us here again today. And allowed us to open up your word and to study it together because you're faithful, because you're long-suffering. And it's your character, it's your love, your, your covenant love for us that is our only hope. And we just rejoice that you love us in Christ as you do. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.